Feels good to be back in West. I like this. You guys are much closer. It feels, feels like home. Miss you guys. Well, one of the greatest musical composers of all time is a man by the name of John Williams. Second would be the guy that wrote the My Name is Chicky song. But John Williams for sure is in first place. Now, John Williams has a pretty ordinary name, but he has an extraordinary way with music. In fact, you, if you don't know his name, you certainly know his music. For instance, you might know this one. That's John Williams, and that comes from the movie Jurassic Park. Or you might be a fan of some sci-fi where you always love the bad guy song. Imperial March, Star Wars. Or if nothing else, you know this song because it's in every parody of a scary movie. No, he didn't, Frederick. Jaws is where that comes from. John Williams is a, a musician of brilliance. In fact, his ability with melodies and creating these dramatic crescendos with these brilliant displays of majesty and storytelling are second to none, unsurpassed, unparalleled. In fact, he's been called one of the greatest composers of all time. So of course, that leads people to ask, well, John, what makes you so special? How are you able to crank out hit after hit after hit? And he says this, he says, and this is what he looks like, by the way, he says, I developed from a very I developed from very early on a habit of writing something every day, good or bad. There are good days and there are less good days, but I do a certain amount of pages before I can feel like the day has been completely served. Well, certainly, John, you have your days where you have writer's block, where you just, you're not feeling it and you just, you just can't do anything because you're just having that icky feeling where I you know, wake up on the right side of the bed or something. Here's what he says. He says, I never experienced anything like a block. For me, if I'm ever blocked or I feel like I don't quite know where to go at the next turn, the best thing for me is to keep writing, to write something. One of the things that John highlights for us is that success in life or success in music or success really in any endeavor of any of your life's existence is contingent upon one critical factor, and that's your discipline. And it's no less true in your spiritual life as it is in the life of your athletics or your academics or anything else that you want to do with your life. But it's especially important and urgent when it comes to the way that you approach your faith. I don't know about you, but there are times when I feel like I don't want to get up and do anything. In fact, if I could be candid with you, <laughs> the last 24 hours have been rough for me. I, I think I must have had some kind of flu bug and I didn't want to do anything. I hated life. In fact, when Kristen said, hey, how can I pray for you? I said, pray that I die. Just not to be too dramatic, but <laughs> one of those days where I was like, ah, oh, I don't want to be alive right now. But even if you're not physically sick, sometimes you feel a spiritual sickness or a spiritual lethargy, a, a spiritual kind of malaise where you, just, you don't feel close to God anymore. Your faith used to be characterized by discipline and joy, and you loved worshiping. You loved that song, holy, holy, holy. That song would just elevate your soul, and you'd be like, yeah, Jesus. And now when you hear it, you're like, man, her voice is a little pitchy today, huh? Just, uh. Which it wasn't. I'm not saying that at all. 
But in your mind, you start to feel these feelings of, I don't know, you start getting critical and harsh and your soul becomes hardened to the things that you used to be soft to. Well, how does someone navigate through that given the fact that life is hard and there's really few times when you're able to kind of get through that? There's, you can't avoid the harshness of life. You're going to have tests and you're going to have finals. You're going to have all sorts of things that are going to continue to put pressure on you. So how does someone survive and even thrive in the middle of that? And that's where Hebrews chapter 10 comes along because the secret ingredient to anything successful in your life is ultimately going to come down to your willingness to discipline yourself to pursue the right and good thing no matter what. Just like John shows us, John Williams shows us when it comes to writing music. To write beautiful music, you discipline yourself to do it every day. To have a spiritually successful life, to thrive in your spiritual life, you do that day by day through disciplined effort at pursuing God, pursuing Christ's likeness. In fact, if I could put it simply, faith works when you work. Faith works when you work. Let me show you. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 19 to 39 tonight. Starting at verse 19, chapter 10, goes like this. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, pause. I put this on the screen for you just so you can see the layout of the text here. There are two senses. Do you see that? Two senses. Two foundations or propositions that the rest of this text or the rest of this paragraph is built upon. He's saying, because of this salvation that Jesus effected for you, which Elvis preached about last week, the, the work that Christ has done, offering a singular sacrifice on your behalf, because of that, and now because Jesus has opened up the holy of holies, not through just the curtain, but the curtain of his flesh, because Jesus made that available to you, and because Jesus has authoritatively granted you the ability to draw near to God, he says, because of that, what? He's going to give you three lettuces, three lettuces, or let us. So two senses and three lettuces, two senses, three lettuces. Okay, so he's building a foundation because this is true, because of your faith in Christ, because of what Christ has done for you, because of how he has offered up himself on your behalf. Because of that, here are the three lettuces. Very good. Verse 22, let us first draw near, draw near in, in a certain manner. We're to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You might notice an allusion here to the Old Testament sacrificial system. You have this, uh, this sprinkling of water, the, uh, having your bodies washed. Remember, when you're going into the, the tabernacle, you have the brazen laver where you wash your hands. You're purifying yourself. You're going through a ritual. And the this, this text is saying here that Christ didn't just go through a ritual for us. He actually secured actual, genuine, authentic purification by sacrificing himself for you. And therefore, because you have that, your job now is to let us, therefore, enter the Holy of Holies with confidence that Christ accepts you because, or God accepts you because of what Christ has done on your behalf. You are acceptable to God. You are wanted by God. You are loved by God because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Therefore, go to God with confidence. You are worthy to stand before God on the merits of Jesus. You enter the Holy of Holies without fear, without shame, without guilt. Why? Well, because because Jesus offered himself for you. This is the faith. That's the first lettuce. 
The second lettuce, verse 23, because of what Jesus has done for us, verse 23, let us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because I'm strong enough? No, for he who promised is faithful. Notice here two actors. You hold because he holds. You hold on to him because he's holding on to you. It's not an either or. It's not, hey, let go and let God because God's holding on to you. It's cling to God because God's clinging to you. Hold fast our confession because he's holding on to you. It's a both and. That's a second lettuce. The first lettuce is to draw near to God. The second lettuce is to hold fast the confession. And the confession could be a way of saying, hold fast the truth of what you know. Hold fast the tradition that you've been given that tells you that you're right with God, that you're, uh, you're, you have an appropriate way of, uh, of approaching God. And that's, that's, because, that's one of the implications of your faith. This regular approach to God, this holding fast to the, the, the word of God. Verse 24, the last lettuce. And let us consider, think about, let us ponder, let us reflect upon, let us imagine how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, I want to pause right there and just let you know here. We're not going to spend a lot of time on, that, on this tonight, but I need you to see this. Your job in, re, in response to your faith is to look at your brothers and sisters and say, okay, I know, what, I know what his weakness is. I know what he struggles with. I'm going to reach out to him. I'm going to find out how I can help encourage and exhort him to follow God the way that God wants him to. I'm going to think about my sisters individually and say, what, is, what does my sister need to hear from me today? If I'm going to text her, what can I text her that's going to help be aware of her situation and encourage, exhort her, galvanize her to follow what Jesus has said? This is your job. Furthermore, he goes on to say, verse 25, we're not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Some people were stopping meeting. They're like, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. My faith is kind of fragile right now. I'm dry. I feel dull. I'm not going to go to church. I don't want to. You know, practice has been so much this week. I've been in you know, finals and I had this project that was due. I'm just not going to do that. They grew into a habit of neglecting to meet together. And scripture tells us here, that's a bad, bad thing. In fact, that only provokes further spiritual withdrawal and not increasing spiritual vitality, which is kind of a no-brainer. But he goes on to tell them, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but instead of that, encouraging one another. Well, if I do it once a week, I'm doing okay. Well, yeah, that's true. But in all the more, as you see the day, the day of Christ's return, the day of consummation, the day when Jesus... Uh, crushes his enemies and makes himself the clear, evident king of creation. We're to encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you have two censuses, senses, and three lettuces. He says, based on the foundation of all that is said here about who Christ is and what he's done for you, and basically he's summarizing the last two chapters. He's saying, because of these things, your life ought to be characterized by three lettuces, to draw near to God. You're drawing near to him. You're clinging to his truth. And thirdly, you're engaging in love for your brothers and sisters in a way that is thoughtful and provocative. You're spiritually antagonizing. You're spiritually um, arousing them to love and good works. I'm going to make a simple observation. I'm going to say that this is the regular exercise of our faith, and it should be done every day. So that's why I put it like this. Point number one, you should exercise your faith every day. 
If you're going through a season right now of feeling spiritually dull or achy or even just on the verge of saying, you know, I'm not quite there. I feel like I'm not thriving the way I used to. This is for you. Your job is to go and exercise your faith every day, even when you don't feel like it. There's this, there's, I don't know if you've heard of this. There's this rule called the 10,000 hour rule. You heard of this? This was popularized by, I mean, this, is going, this goes back a way, but it's popularized by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book called Outliers, and he talks about the way that people uh, find themselves to be extremely successful. What made the Beatles so successful? What made Yo-Yo Ma so successful? Uh, what made all these athletes who were at the top of their game so successful? And he argues that one of the primary factors that takes someone from decent to good to great is the amount of deliberate practice they put in to their craft. And he argues that the way that someone goes from good to amazing or goes from just average to exceptionally good is 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. And he says the practice is so difficult and so demanding because it's deliberate practice that typically it takes someone about 10 years to reach that level of deliberate practice. 10,000 hours or 10 years of dedicated practice to reach a level of expertise. Now, obviously, whatever it is that you want to do with your life, hey, there's something helpful for you to think about. But let's, let's at the very minimum say that's a good principle for us to think about when it comes to our spiritual lives. We ought to be exercising our faith. Now, granted, maybe you can't put in two or three hours a day to get to 10,000 hours over the next 10 years, but you can say, how do I make sure that I'm dedicating spiritual exercise, some sweat equity to my walk with Jesus? I'm, I'm going to guess, and I'm taking out on a limb here, that you have gone to your practices, you've gone to rehearsals, you've gone to things where you didn't want to be there, but you did it anyway. And on some rare occasions, not only did you do it, you did it well. You gave it your best. You did, you did a commendable effort. And I'm trusting that God blessed you through that. You appreciated the practice afterward. You enjoyed the fact that you sweat. You enjoyed the fact that you gave it your all because it felt good. Your spiritual life is no different in that when you show up day after day, even when it doesn't feel good, it does good. Exercise your faith every day. Now, let, let me qualify this. I need to say this, and I'm just going to put it this way. You're to exercise your faith in the gym, in the place of, in the context of a gospel-centered faith. And here's what I mean by that. I don't want you to think even for one second, which is why I'm going to take time to say this, because it's obvious, but it may not be obvious to you. I don't want you to think for a second that your works make you more acceptable to God. I never want you to think that you're exercising your Bible reading or that you're praying for an hour a day or that your Bible memorization somehow makes you more acceptable to God. It doesn't make you more worthy to God or less worthy for that matter. Now, there's a fine line here because I'm, I don't want to hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying, what I, what I am saying is this. Your works don't make you more savable, don't make you more worthy. Your works, your acts of obedience should be done in response to and in conjunction to God's saving work through Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. That's what I mean by gospel-centered. It's one thing to go to the gym of spiritual exercise and to say, I'm going to be a better Christian this year, and I'm going to make God love me even more than he already does. I'm going to make God think I'm the most amazing Christian ever. When it's a you-centered spiritual exercise, you're bound to fail. But let me tell you this. When you go to God recognizing that God loves you and that he has saved you from his own kindness, out of his own grace, that's when your spiritual exercise becomes an appropriate act of worship. You should aspire to get spiritual gains. You should aspire to grow in your faith. You should aspire 
to be one of the godliest people you know, if not the most godly. In fact, that was one of Jonathan Edwards' goals. He wanted to be the godliest person alive. But the idea here is that I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I want you to have a true gospel in your head as you appropriate the grace of God. You need to exercise your faith in the gym of gospel-centered faith and through this spirit-inspired workout routine, okay? You have a place to work out and you have a workout to apply. And, and you've already seen it. I've already given, you've already read it in the text. Let me read it for you one more time and I'll, I'll tell you exactly what that workout routine is. You ready for it? Here it goes. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. What do you think drawing near to God looks like in spiritual exercise? Pray. Pray. Draw near to God in prayer. One of the obvious things that I could say to you over and over again, and it would always be relevant, is you need to pray better. <laughs> We're to draw near to God with full assurance. We're to approach God with great, uh, with great assurance that Christ has saved us, and we're to approach him day by day. Look, if your faith is dry and weak, you need to be in prayer. Is, is there nothing more obvious I can say? And perhaps one of the things I need to say to you is you might need to pray a prayer of repentance. God, I'm sorry that my heart does not rejoice in you. I know I should. I know that's what I should be, that's how I should feel. The fact that my heart is dry and callous is not your fault, it's mine. You need to make a habit of praying before God daily. What does that look like for you today? And I know for some of you, you might say, well, when I do that, Rod, it just feels like I'm just going through the motions. I do the talking to the ceiling. No one's there. I don't get any of the feelings I used to feel. And I could say, look, I know what that feels like. I know, I know, I know. Two things. One, don't quit. Keep at it. Two, pray until you pray. There is a shift. It's kind of like the runner's high. You know, when you're running, you run at a certain amount of time. It doesn't happen all the time, but when you're running, and I only know this because someone told me, when you're running, there's a point when you, you hit this like wave of like, this feels amazing. I could run forever. Running actually feels good. There's a prayer, a prayer high, I guess, <laughs> when you're praying and there's a moment in that prayer where it's, you, stop, you stop practicing prayer and you're actually praying. You're connecting with God in ways that are intimate and meaningful. Let me tell you, that, that's something that you should aspire for. Hit that prayer high. It's a terrible analogy. I don't even like the word high because I know what it connotates. The prayer euphoria. <laughs> you know what I mean. That's probably not as good. Yeah. We're just going to edit that one out. Just... Let us draw near. So the first thing you should do is pray. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. I'm going to tell you first you should pray. I'm also going to tell you too, you should study your Bible. You should, you should study your Bible. The, the spiritual, the spirit-inspired workout routine is that you pray and you read your Bible. Is anyone surprised by this so far? No. You should do it, though. Let me tell you, I do know as a pastor, I talk to lots of people and lots of young people who would say, yeah, I'm trying to make that a daily practice of my life. I'm, I, and some days I have a much better day. Other days I don't. Young person, can I, can I just, man, I, I, this is probably my, I have six or seven sermons left in the queue before we're done here. Okay, six or something like that. I'm almost done in this ministry. And if, if I could just give you one, like if I could press a button and make you do something every day, it would be to read your Bible. Everything else in your Christian life is contingent, dependent upon your ability to get into God's word in a serious, meaningful way. Until you're at that place, 
it's going to be hard for you to say, man, I want to pray. I want to pray better. You're going to have a hard time praying unless you know the God of prayer. Well, I want to be a better Christian. I want to love people better. You're not going to know what love is until you understand what God defines love as. I want to be more patient. I want to have more fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit works through His Word. Please, if you're not there yet, and I'm not trying to shame you or, or throw shade. If, if you're not there yet, that's okay. But let me tell you this. You should be better this year than you were last year. You should be making progress. And there are so many ways for you to, to make this a regular pattern of your life. I mean, if you want to do this, you can do this. And I trust that your leaders have lots of ways that they can help encourage you to go this direction. But if your faith is weak, I would ask you, first of all, what does your prayer life look like? If your faith is weak, I would ask you, second, what does your Bible time look like? I also ask you a third question related to our third lettuce. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? Are you fellowshipping with other Christians? Are you prioritizing people in your life? And not just any people. You should be prioritizing Christian people. You should be connecting with people in a way that is real, authentic, and in a way that's going to inspire and motivate you to follow Christ more faithfully. There's a way to spend time with people that's not going to help you. There's people that you like just because you share the same likes. We like music. We like running. We like games. And that's fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But you as a Christian should prioritize spending time with other Christians for the purpose of doing Christianly things, talking about Christ, exciting one another to love Christ. Talk about a Christian book that you're reading. Talk about a, a certain aspect of theology that you're studying. This is something that you should deliberately do. If your faith is weak, if your faith is fragile, if your faith is faltering, you need to find Christian friends to influence you for the positive. You need to be in the Bible. You need to be praying. A weak faith has weak habits of faith. And a faith that works is a faith that you're working. A faith that is growing is a faith that you are investing in. Okay, I said more than I wanted to there. But there are dangers here in ignoring this. And this is where this next passage comes in. The author of Hebrews is so intent on you getting this that he says, look, if you don't hear this, here's the alternative. And here's what he says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Ignoring the gospel, ignoring the offer of Christ, and even getting lazy with your faith inevitably leads you on a path that ends in destruction. That's, that's what this verse is saying here. Now, is he talking to Christians? I think he is. I think he's talking to Christians saying, Christian, wake up. Those who follow Christ will heed the warnings of Scripture and say, I never want that to be me. You know, listen, I, I told you before, I, I am assured of my salvation. And I love that. That's a gift that I appreciate deeply. But that doesn't let me do anything I want. In fact, because I'm a Christian, because I'm assured of my salvation, that makes me extra cautious to not put myself in situations that are going to threaten my faith. Well, I thought you were secured in your salvation. I am. Because I'm secured in that salvation, I make decisions that protect me against letting my faith go weary or letting my faith get weakened or assaulted. Christians heed warnings. And one of the warnings that we need to heed if you're a Christian here is that the options are clear. 
it's responding to the gospel in repentant faith that, that is exercised throughout the duration of your life, or after knowing the truth and rejecting it, there's no longer any options, but God will judge you. He goes on. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, first five books of the Bible, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. When someone broke the law under the old covenant, like if someone killed somebody, if you killed a friend and two other people said, up, oh, I saw him kill his friend, then under the Mosaic law, you're to be stoned to death. And no one in the community was to pity you. Oh, I feel really bad that he got stoned. No, he killed somebody. He violated a clear commandment of God. He, def- he, uh, he killed an image bearer. And therefore, we're all to dispose of you without mercy. You've earned this. This is what you deserve. That's what he's saying. That's what happens. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Imagine that. Okay, imagine with me, if you will, it's 2,000 years ago, and you're looking at the cross at Golgotha. You see Jesus on the cross. He's naked. He's bloodied. His body's stripped of flesh. He's clearly exhausted. And someone uh, walks up to the cross and just starts dancing in the blood of Jesus Christ and flipping him the bird as he's dying on the cross for sinners. And I could even see Jesus at that point saying, Father, forgive them, for I know not what they, for they know not what they do. But imagine that kind of atrocity. I think even people who weren't committed to Christ would still say, what are you doing? What an evil thing to do. And, and what the author of Hebrews is saying is that's exactly what we're doing when we reject Christ and the gospel. We're saying, I don't need your blood. I would spit at your blood. I would spit at you if I had the opportunity. I don't want anything to do with you. What do you think is deserved by the person who tramples underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ? If Jesus were laying on the floor, bloodied and bruised, it's saying essentially you would just step right over him. Or even worse, you'd step on top of him. How do you think the Father feels about that? Not only trampling underfoot the Son of God and profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has, this is a strong word here, outraged the spirit of grace. Outrage. How do you think God feels about people who deliberately reject his gracious offer of salvation? If you're getting the sense of this text here, it's a serious one. He doesn't feel good about that, to say the least. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Point two, you ought to fear the consequences of faithlessness. If your faith is fragile and weak right now, you ought to see what the end result is of letting your faith falter and say, I want nothing to do with that. I don't want to violate the covenant. I don't want to run away from Christ. I want to, I want to stay close to him. I want to keep my faith alive and thriving, which means that you're going to have to be disciplined in your approach. You're going to have to discipline yourself. But let's talk about the two consequences that I have in mind here. Years ago, I, I maybe accidentally or intentionally did a rolling stop. I looked both ways, kind of, as I slowed down to the stop sign, and then I kept going. I was much younger than I was today. So don't use me as an excuse to do the same thing. <laughs> and as I rolled on my way, I noticed in the distance, but far too late, that there was someone hiding just behind the bushes. He was on his motorcycle, and he was looking right at me. And I don't know how far away he was, but I feel like we made eye contact And at that moment, I knew 
I was caught. I was guilty of sin. Because you see, the man behind the bush on his motorcycle was not just a neighbor. Oh, no. He was a police officer. (laughs) And so when I saw the red and blues behind me, I knew exactly what was going to happen. So I hit the gas and tried to outrun him. (laughs) Just kidding. I didn't do that. I pulled over. I pulled over and... He said, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, I think I knew why he pulled me over. And he proceeded to give me a ticket. And at the time, I was mad at myself because I'm like, oh, this, is, this is a waste of my time. I don't know what I'm doing here. But I was even more mad at myself when I realized that the ticket for running a stop sign was far more expensive than I even knew when I committed the crime. It was ridiculous. Hundreds of dollars. And to add insult to injury, they made me go to, to traffic school. Like, I don't know how to drive. I've been driving for a couple years at that point, some legally, some illegally, but I've been driving for a long time, and they made me go to traffic school. It's like 30 hours of watching online videos about how to be a better driver. I mean, I was, it was a waste of my time and a waste of my money. Time I'll, I'll never get back, and money I'll never get back. So let me encourage you. Don't run stop signs. <laughs> Follow and obey the laws of the land, lest you do as I did and have to go to traffic school and pay hundreds of dollars for something that you never want to do. Now, you understand the, the consequences for running a stop sign. Not a big deal. I mean, a big deal, but n- not a big deal. When you think about the comparison of uh, the consequences of denying or rejecting Christ or letting your faith grow frail and weak. Okay, let me give you two. All right, the first one is the, the first consequence of denying Christ or uh, faithlessness toward Christ is judgment. And let me put it like this. You get to choose one. You could pick Jesus or judgment. There's not a both and, right? You, Jesus or judgment. For you, young person, if you're not a Christian, let me plead with you. you. It's worse for you because you're hearing this. It's worse for you because you're hearing the gospel. You get to pick between Jesus and judgment with knowledge. And when you have this knowledge, it puts you in great opposition to God. We'll talk about this more in a second, but let me, let me finish this on, on judgment. Judgment, either you're judged for your sin or Jesus is judged for your sin. And there's no other option. Let me plead with you, pick Jesus. Choose Jesus. You don't want to stand before God on your own account and say, God, I'm trusting that my good deeds are good enough to get me on the right side of you. No. Scripture says that you'll have a fearful expectation of judgment. A fearful expectation of judgment. There's no other options. There's no second place. There's no alternative. There's no second chance when you, go to, when, when you die. It's all one, one opportunity, and this is it. You get one life, make the right choice. There was a gal on the Titanic who she, she was on the highest floor. She's one of the wealthier people that survived. She was on the, the top deck where people were. And as they were exiting the Titanic, the, the guy that was trying to put her on the boat said, ma'am, you have to get on. This is the only option you have to get off the boat. To which she replied, well, this is really high and there's a big gap between the deck and the boat. What happens if I fall through? I could die. He says, ma'am, either way you're gonna die. <laughs> get in the boat get in the boat. You're going to die one way or another. Let's not make it now. Jump in the boat. Risk your life to save your life. Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels actually gains his life. Jump in the boat. You're going to die either way. The only option for you to survive this life and the next successfully is to be safe in Christ. The second consequence First one is judgment. The second one is a natural response to that, wrath. And I put it this way. I think wrath is going to be a combination of your knowledge multiplied in some degree by your rebellion. 
as I was saying a few minutes ago, your, your knowledge of the, uh, of the law is what's going to either elevate your culpability or lessen it. Here's what I mean by that. I knew, I knew without a doubt that rolling across a stop sign was illegal. So when I was pulled over, I had no excuse. I couldn't say, well, I'm from another country. I didn't know. In my country, stop sign doesn't mean stop. It means slow. Like that didn't work. I knew and therefore I was guilty. I paid my fine. But there is a sense in which justice would allow for a lesser punishment if I truly did not know. I still would have broken the law. The law would still need to be satisfied and there would be some penalty. But if I truly did not know, there would be a less penalty, which would be appropriate. I don't know if that's actually the case of how that works, but you get the idea here. You all have been given knowledge. Whether you accept it or not, whether you think it's true or not, you've been given knowledge. You've been taught the scriptures. And for many of you, most of you actually, you've been taught the scriptures since you were just knee high. And now you're about ready to graduate from high school and go and do your own life by yourself. This is it. You've been taught. You are now more culpable, more responsible before God because of what you know. You have an awareness of sin. You have an awareness of God's standard of righteousness. And you have an awareness of how to be right with God. And to allow yourself to not respond to that is to invite greater vengeance, greater wrath. Write down a text, Matthew 10, 15. On Matthew 10, 15, Jesus says, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It'll be more bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Now, of course, you're asking, which town? It was a town where he preached the gospel. It was a town where they were given the truth. And he says, when both are judged, the town that had greater knowledge is going to have greater wrath, greater judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, they're judged too because they violated God's law, but they violated without knowledge. So their judgment will look different. If you're a non-Christian, obviously this applies to you in a, in a great and immediately practical way. You need to be right with your maker. You need to submit yourself to Christ tonight. If you are a Christian, how does this apply to you since you're saved by God's grace? Well, again, Christians understand that the warnings of Scripture are meant to keep us on the path. Like guardrails around the mountain as we ascend up Big Bear, those guardrails tell us, I better slow down and make sure I don't go over the cliff. What's the cliff for us? The cliff is apostasy, leaving Christ. And the way that we avoid that is by making sure that we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. The stakes are impossibly high. Faith works when we work. And if we don't work our faith, it results in faithlessness and the consequences are devastating. Let that not be you. As, again, as I said here, the, the audience are struggling Christians. They once had a vibrant faith and now they're struggling. Their faith is weak and weary. And here's how the preacher concludes this section of chapter 10. He says, look, I want you to recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you got saved, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes even being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And get this, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You, you notice I want to I highlight one 
feature here in verse 34. It was because they had, uh, the last part of verse 34, they knew they had a better possession, that they were able to joyfully take on the pains and trials that the world put upon them. They knew they were eternally minded, and therefore the temporary stuff didn't bother them as much. In fact, not only did it not bother them, they were able to say, I can, I can praise God for this. I'm thankful to God because my possession is not here in this life. My possession is there in the next life. Eternally minded. That's what propelled their faith forward. He goes on to say, look, therefore, don't throw away your confidence. Don't give up. Keep going. It has great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He says, look, think about the life that you had before. Think about what happened in the past, how God brought you through those seasons faithfully. And not only that, because God did that faithfully, I know that it's not feeling good right now. I know you're hurting right now and it's, it's a struggle, but think back to what God did and how God took care of you in the past. Not only that, keep going. Let your eternal mindset drive you to keep pushing on to the upward, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, look, God has pleasure in those who exercise faith. And those who don't, there's no pleasure there, which is why he's saying, look, this is going to call you to, pr to practice your faith. Exercise your faith. This is the person who endures. And, and, the, and the preacher says, look, I'm confident. This is who you guys are. You are going to exercise your faith. Jesus is coming. Eternity is on the precipice. Don't lose heart. Keep going. My observation that I want you to write down for your third point here is not so much focused on on the, the general thrust of this, but an observation that this Christian preacher is talking to a Christian congregation who's really struggling to get it together right now. My observation for you is you should plan to experience seasons of dull faith, which it seems to be where these guys were, which would explain a, a lot why he had to keep on uh, challenging them and warning them not to lose heart, not to lose their faith. Throughout Scripture, there's continual testimony from, from psalmists, singers, and, and authors of Scripture that says, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. I mean, you have this throughout Scripture where these guys are pleading with God. God, where are you? I don't feel you. I don't feel close to you. God, my soul is dry and heavy. I'm depressed. I'm sorrowful. God, where are you? Please answer me when I call. God, what happened? In fact, in Psalm 51, verse 12, David prays, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And he says, uphold me with a willing spirit. Make me will to love you again, God. Make my heart yield to you. Scripture knows where you're coming from. And let me tell you, as a Christian who's been there, done that before you, I know what that feels like. I don't know about you. I think every person is different. Your constitution, your emotional climate, there's a lot of things that factor into this. But I can promise you this. If you don't go through seasons of difficulty in your faith, I would question whether or not your faith is serious because when you take your faith seriously, it's going to have serious ramifications for your life. It's going to cause you to step away from jobs or to lose a job. It's going to cause you to break up with people or to make up with people. It's going to cause you to have some real serious dry seasons and difficulties. This is normal. 
Now, let me be clear. Normal doesn't mean good. Seasons where you're doubting God or struggling to trust God or even struggling to wrap your mind around what he's said in his scripture. It's normal, but normal doesn't always mean good. Normal just means this is part of how life is under the sun in our fallenness. But with that said, let me tell you this. If you're there or if you're, you know what I'm talking about, it's normal. Let me give you some encouragement from the text about how to make it through, how to make yourself, to, to get through these seasons of difficulty. I want to first point out to you that you should appreciate what God is doing in you and through you in these seasons. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews says, look, you need to understand, uh, remember when this happened to you a long time ago, when you were in prison, when you were shamed and, and persecuted? He said, you, you received that joyfully. And look what God did through you in that. Look what God uh, produced in your life. Which tells me this isn't the first time these guys have experienced difficulty and hardship. It's not going to be your first time or your last time, I'm sure. As long as you live as a Christian, life's going to be hard for you. Expect that, but appreciate that God is doing something in you. Have, you. have you experienced anything that's causing your faith to struggle? Know that if you are in Christ, it is on purpose. God is doing good things when you struggle as a Christian. You need to believe that. There's just no other way for me to say this. Whatever trials or tragedies befall you, you need to know that God is not doing it to you, but for you. Whether or not you choose to believe that really is up to you. But I really be- hope that you would because God is doing good things through the difficulties in your life. James, in fact, says you should count it joy. Now, I know it's kind of weird to be excited during tragedy or excited. And I don't think that's what he's saying. He's not saying you should be happy or ecstatic when your mom or dad are diagnosed with a brain tumor. It's not like you go in there and say, yeah. He is saying, though, what he is saying. Count it all joy when you meet trials. Four, you're excited about the prospect of what God's going to do in that season of your life. And if you're in the season right now, you're in the trials of various kinds, so it's all kind of different trials. If you're in that season of trial, God's using it for you. If your faith is struggling, God's making it stronger through this. If you're dry, God's preparing you for a season of harvest through this. If you're depressed, God's preparing you for a season of elation and joy in him and through it. So your job then is to count it, to think about it, to accept it in your mind as, God, you're putting me through this. And this is a good purpose on your part. Help me to believe that, trust that, and to rejoice in you through that. Appreciate what God is doing in you through these seasons. If I I could just add one more thing to this. You should thank God for leading you through. Don't try to shortcut the process. Don't look for life hacks. Okay, don't go to different people to say, okay, how do I shortcut the process of this particular? Just let God do what God is doing. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to change things if you can have any choice in that, but don't try to shortcut or life hack the process. And by the way, if I could just add one more, journal what you're learning. God's teaching you all the time. Journal what you're learning. You also have to look forward to the eternal rewards of endurance. He says, don't throw away your confidence. Don't give up. Don't, don't stop running the race before the race is done. And this is the challenge because for like, I don't know about you guys, but it sometimes feels like life, the, the race is just so hard. There's so much happening and it's like you're wearing a rucksack on top of it and people are trying to trip you and throw you. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's an obstacle race, but it's a forever race and you don't know where the, the finish line is. 
But don't give up. Don't throw away. Don't trash your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance. I mean, I think about the people that are running races and they're, they're, they're almost making it to the finish line, but they, they can't, they're exhausted. And so they're falling and tripping over themselves. But I appreciate it because for most of these people, like they don't give up. They keep on pushing, even though they keep on falling their way toward the finish line. And it's only 26.2 miles. I don't know why it's such a big deal. But it's, but it's commendable when you see this. Like against all odds, their body shutting down because of the tremendous amount of suffering they put themselves through. They keep pushing. Now, one has to ask, why would they do this? And I think you could probably venture to guess a few obvious reasons. They put in all this training, all this work. They're so close to the finish line. It doesn't make sense for them to give up at this point. Even if you have to drag yourself into the finish line, crawling your way into the finish line. It's amazing because you get to see the, the tenacity of the human will. And it's brilliant on display when you see it in a physical realm. But how much more glorious is it when you see this in the spiritual realm? People that are unwilling to yield because they trust the God of the race. The one who's designed the race just for them. Now, unlike a 26.2 mile race at the Boston, the LA, or the San Diego Marathon, I mean, they're all, they're all the same track for everybody. But the race that you run is one God designed just for you. God will put you in seasons where it feels like you can't finish. And in fact, you'll see races where they get DQ'd because they can't finish. And that's one of the most disappointing and sad things to see. He, he, he doesn't make it. I guess I shouldn't have told you that. And there are some people that won't make it. And that'll scare you because it's like, well, if they can't make it, then I can't make it. No, God has a race just for you. Trust him. Don't quit until it's time. Don't give up before the race is done. Why? Because the, the end of the race has a reward for you if you're willing to let God lead you through it. You get one life. You get one race. There's only one race. Really, it's a, it's a succession of a lot of mini races, I suppose, but you get one life and one race to give your best shot at storing up a wealth of eternal rewards. You get one life, young person, and it will soon be past, but only what's done for Christ will last. Look forward to the eternal rewards of endurance. I don't know what motivates and excites you. I don't know what gets you all juiced up and amped up and ready to run, but let me encourage you. The scripture is going to be one of the best things for you to put in your mind to keep you running. You need to make sure that God's word is so stuck in your head and in your heart that when you're running, you have something to repeat to yourself. When you're ready to give up, you can quote to yourself and recite promises to yourself that keep you running even to the very end. What's going to get you up off the pavement? What's going to get you out of your bed in the morning? What's going to get you to keep running? You need God's word in your heart. You need to keep pushing to put God's word in your head and heart. You need to look forward to the eternal rewards and when it comes down to your race, I don't want you giving up. I don't want you quitting. I'm sorry I have to finish the video early because I just need to keep us going here. Okay, appreciate what God is doing in you through these seasons. Look forward to the eternal rewards of endurance. And last, rely on disciplined acts of faith. When your emotions aren't there, rely on disciplined acts of faith. Your emotions will come and your emotions will go. Your happiness will jump and increase, your happiness will decrease and fall through the floor. For the Christian, I know it's never the best place to be, but let me tell you, 
what God wants you to do in these seasons is to keep on plotting, to stay obedient even when it feels like God is absent. You must keep on plotting. So there's really three options I can think of here for, for you. You can deny Jesus and just quit. You can drift, which goes back to Hebrews chapter two. You can drift away from Jesus and just kind of let it happen slowly but surely. Or you can discipline yourself to follow after Jesus even when you don't feel like it. And I know for many of you, maybe even tonight you may not feel like it. But let me encourage you, faith works when you work. And I would encourage you to day by day, work out your faith, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will to work for his good pleasure. <sighs> Exercise your faith every day. Fear the consequences of faithlessness. Plan to experience seasons of dull faith. We do this because we love God, we trust God, but even when we do these things, the idea here is not for you to kind of grit your teeth, force vegetables in your gullet and eat it because you have to. It's never the idea. But to realize that when you discipline yourself to pursue Christ-likeness and you discipline yourself to grow in your faith, you find that what your soul really wants and craves all along is to follow the only one who can satisfy your soul. And that, of course, is Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is better. Let's pray.